Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 and take up the third of three sentences that are there by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and comfort our souls and excite our minds with the things that are revealed there. I'm thankful that He's made known to us the mystery of His will. It's no longer a mystery to us. It's a mystery to everyone else. They don't know anything. We know everything. All the serious issues of life and questions that they have floundered with from time immemorial, meaning 6,000 years, we have the answers to them. They can't find the answers. They don't even know how to form the questions. They have to assume things that they can't deal with because the truth has been revealed to us. We know the cause of death, the source of death, how long death has been in the universe, the cure for death, the end of death, and the everlasting life that's been secured for us by God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're thankful that the second Adam came and undid what the first Adam did. And we are blessed abundantly in Him. In Ephesians chapter 1, which most of you have long known, is one of the chief chapters in the Bible about election and predestination. We have three sentences in verses 3 through 14. And it's those three sentences that I've labored the last few weeks and will labor today to convince you of their meaning and for you to find assurance and comfort and strength in them, delight for your souls, and to be able to teach them to others and to defend them against those who have a misunderstanding about the God of the Bible. Let me read to you these three sentences beginning at verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. Amen and amen. Sometimes it is helpful when you're faced with a section of material like Ephesians 1 to break it down into parts so that you can get your mental hands around smaller sections in order to understand it more easily. So we have a salutation in verses 1 and 2, but we have a sentence in verses 3 through 6 that starts with God's electing grace and the granting of blessings toward His people from the foundation of the world forward. And these three sentences are always working from eternity past toward eternity future. So we have election in this first sentence that works its way from the foundation of the world forward to our being accepted in the Beloved, which took place on the cross of Calvary when the Lord Jesus Christ took our sins and secured for us His righteousness. Then in verses 7 through 12, we have the progression from what actually was accomplished at the cross in whom we have redemption. That's a legal aspect of salvation and the forgiveness of sins legally given there because His blood is mentioned and it progresses forward into this period of time that we now live in, the dispensation of the fullness of times. That's the third dispensation since the creation of the world. We're in the last one. And so it's moving into that one. And it says in verse 11 that we have an inheritance coming. And that God is gathering together His whole family through Jesus Christ, some of which are already in heaven, some of which are still on earth, but He will gather them together into one body, kingdom, under Christ and in Christ. And Paul, as a Jew and the Jews that believed in Judea with him are noted first because it says who first trusted in Christ. They were the first believers of the gospel because the gospel went first to the Jews. And then we have us in this third sentence of the three. And it's verses 13 and 14. In whom, that is in Christ, ye also trusted. That also there is telling us that there's two things being compared, it's Paul and the Jews of verses 11 and 12, and it's the Ephesian Gentile believers in verses 13 and 14 where we put ourselves, in whom ye also trusted. And then we're told a few things that happen after we believe. After we believe the truth and are baptized, we are given the gift of the Holy Ghost. God gives a gift here called a seal, and called the earnest of our inheritance, His promise to perform, His surety bond, His guarantee that we will have an inheritance, He gives the Holy Spirit. His mark upon us. You know, kings used to mark things with signets. Notary publics still mark things with their seal that they press on a piece of paper by squeezing their seal. And so we have a mark upon us that we are the sons of God, and we have a deposit that we are going to have an eternal inheritance, both of which 
of the Holy Spirit, then there's going to be another redemption. And this is where we thank God for the phases of salvation. Because in verse 7 it says, we already have a redemption. In whom we have redemption through His blood. But here, in verse 14, it says, until the redemption. So there's, there's a redemption already had. There's a redemption yet coming. Which is why we have the five phases of salvation. So that we might rightly divide the word of truth. Lest we end up being ashamed by contradicting ourselves in the pages of Scripture. So the Bible tells us to rightly divide. So we rightly divide by pointing out that verse 7 is the legal aspect of redemption when Jesus Christ's blood bought us back from God's claim against us as sinners. Verse 14 is God's buying our bodies back and all of us out of the claims of this earth, its gravitational force, its total corruption, and its descent into oblivion, which He will accelerate by creating a new heaven and new earth and delivering the whole creation from the groaning and travail, corruption and death that is visible in every aspect of it. And so we end these three sentences and it's all to the praise of His glory. And I hope you remembered as we look at these verses from 3 to 14, we have the, the largest number and the greatest density of expressions about the glory of God, the grace of God, the purpose of God, the pleasure of God, the will of God. It's all by His will. It's all to His glory. It's all to His praise. And this chapter with these three sentences says it as clearly and as thoroughly as it is said anywhere else in the Bible. Let's look at verse 10 and get a running start into our verses 13 and 14. Let's just briefly look at some of the things that we've learned to get ourselves set up properly for the third sentence. So we look at the second half of the second sentence. Verse 10, the dispensation of the fullness of times. A dispensation is an administration of time, an administration of God's government over His people from creation to 2,500 years after creation, or 1,500 B.C., there was the patriarchal period of time. In Romans chapter 5, it's called from Adam to Moses. That was a period of time when men were their own priests and, and priests for their families. And you can think of men like Abel and Noah and Abraham, just mentioning a few. And so for 2,500 years, it was a patriarchal period of time where the head of each household could build his own altar and offer sacrifices of clean animals, which had already been designated before Noah took the animals on the ark and offer them to God. And God would meet with them and communicate with some of them who were closer to him and who were chosen as prophets. So men like Abraham walked with God. The Bible tells us Noah walked with God. Can you think of another man between Abel and Noah that walked with God? Enoch walked with God and God took him. So that's the first dispensation. Then from Moses to John the Baptist and Jesus Christ is called the law. It's called the law and the prophets. It's called the Old Testament. It's called the Old Covenant. There wasn't a covenant in the earth like this until Mount Sinai, which which initiated this 1,500-year period of time bringing us to Christ. 
The Bible puts it this way about dispensations. Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Well, they weren't there for the first 2,500 years. But when you are addressing Old Testament Jews, you don't need to deal with the first 2,500 years because there weren't any Jews. The Jews came out of the Hebrew, out of the descendant of Heber called the Hebrews, meaning Abraham and his Isaac, Jacob, and his twelve sons and their descendants. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. That's Luke 16, 16. And Hebrews 9, 10 tells us that we had now entered into a period of time called the Reformation in which the worship of God was reformed from the Jewish method to the New Testament method of grace under the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says that for 1,500 years, those ceremonies that they had had been imposed on them. Who in the world would ever ask for the law of Moses? The ceremonial aspects of it, the moral aspects of it, were true before Moses And they were true after John. Because the Apostle Paul quotes nine of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. Which commandment didn't he quote? And which commandment did he not bring forward? The Sabbath. Because that was a ceremonial sign to the nation of Israel only. So these are our three dispensations. And the Apostle Paul is telling us that in the dispensation, which dispensation, Paul? The fullness of times. When did Jesus Christ come into this world? In the fullness of time. What is this period of time that we're in right now called? The last days. And so that's how we understand this 10th verse. In this dispensation, the fullness of times, Jesus Christ is going to gather everyone together for God the Father. It's going to be done in Christ. He has saved us. He's broken down any wall of difference that there was between Jews and Gentiles. He's redeemed us from sin. He's taken us out of God's justice against us. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. Jesus Christ regenerates us and translates us out of the kingdom of the spirit of this world into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Jesus is gathering together the whole family of God by spiritual transactions that are out of our sight. That's why they're called mysteries, because men think that the the things they want to believe in have to be recognized by the little mucus ball hanging in their skull. The greater things are happening outside of sight. If you can see it, it is of a very temporary, material nature and doesn't have much value. The things outside of sight are eternal, permanent, and of a spiritual sort that are above and beyond what you can see, touch, or feel. And so it's called a mystery because you can't know about it unless God reveals it to you. And He's revealed this to us. That it's according to the good pleasure which He hath purposed in Himself in that ninth verse, that in this final dispensation, God would gather together in one body all things in Christ, some of which are in heaven and some of which are on earth. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 tells us that in heaven there are the spirits of just men made perfect. In heaven is Abel, Enoch, Noah, 
Abraham, David, and others, only their spirits. It's The Bible's very clear. The spirits of just men made perfect. They are no longer sinning. Their sin nature is gone. Put in a cemetery with their bodies. And then there's us on earth. And so confident and so assuring is the gospel that it tells us when Jesus Christ comes back to make the final gathering together, He is going to gather dead bodies out of the ground before those that are alive and remain to comfort us that physical bodily death is a minor consequence of sin in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ who will gather them first. You know, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 and in 1 Thessalonians 4 were worried about believers that had died. But to assure them, Jesus said He is coming back. Paul said of Jesus, He's coming back for them first. Then we which are alive remain shall be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord there in the clouds. And so that's what the last part of verse 10 is referring to, that we are separated right now, but we are going to be gathered together into one place soon. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, verse 11, being predestinated. Predestination is mentioned four times in the Bible by choice of word. It's twice in Romans 8, and it's twice in Ephesians 1. In both places, predestination, first of all, applies to sonship, that we are adopted as the sons of God. Second, that we have an inheritance or will be glorified with God in heaven. And so it is here. The first occurrence of predestination is back in verse 5, about becoming the sons of God. The second one is here in verse 11, about the eternal inheritance that's waiting for us, or heaven, the heavenly country. When God told Abraham, look north, south, east, and west, Abraham, I'm going to give you all this. Abraham understood God, and this is how we read the Bible and understand it, differently from most others. They want a literal interpretation. We deny it because the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham understood That promise of heaven tells us very clearly that he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Jerusalem in this world has been leveled numerous times, and its builder and maker is not God. But there is a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, as it's called in the Bible, whose builder and maker is God. And a heavenly country, not an earthly country. And so that predestination has been made on two counts for us in this chapter. Our destiny and our destination, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, has been settled from before the foundation of the world in two respects. We shall be the sons of God. Verse 5, we have an eternal inheritance or heaven guaranteed for us by God's predestinating purpose. Verse 11. And so we have verse 11, and the thing is predicated, us getting to heaven is based on and found in this fact, the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now that just puts it entirely in God's hands and takes it entirely out of our hands. You say, well, how can I know that I'm one of God's predestinated ones? 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptized in His glorious name. Bring forth the fruits of righteousness that He has called on us to bring forth. And that is the evidence. Faith and things added to it. With the first act of obedience of faith being baptism. In the Bible, baptism and faith are so tightly connected together, they're seldom pulled apart. As we'll see shortly. Because if you believe, you're going to be baptized. Right. You know, the eunuch asked Philip, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he had already picked up what he ought to believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's what the gospel is all about. And so they stopped the chariot right there because the Lord had providentially arranged that in the middle of a desert, there would all of a sudden be an oasis. And uh, Philip baptized the eunuch. They both came, went down into the water. They both came up out of the water. And uh, Philip was taken away by the Spirit to arrive in a city called Azotus, where he kept right on preaching Jesus Christ. And the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. You're going to get to ride home in something far more comfortable than the eunuch's chariot. He went on his way rejoicing. I hope that we can go home rejoicing. Amen. Unbelievable transaction has been planned from before the foundation of the world, executed in time, and we'll soon see its complete fulfillment. And we're part of it. By our choice, by our means, by our gifts, by our abilities, by our efforts, none of that at all. Because it seemed good in His sight. Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of His glory. Why did God do all of this? Why did God save anyone? From a purely legal, just standpoint, God shouldn't have saved anyone. He should have damned our whole race to hell, just like He did all the sinning angels. But He didn't. He saved some. Because He tells us His reason. There are vessels of honor and there are vessels of dishonor. The vessels of honor are to praise His glorious grace. The vessels of dishonor will praise His wrath and His power. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 24. So we're told why He did it the way He did it. Now, if He had just done it for the sake of justice and righteousness, He'd have sent us all to hell. But He saved some for the display of His glorious grace. And we're thankful for that. And all we can say is because it seemed good in thy sight. Lord, I am not worthy, as Jacob would say, of the least of thy mercies or of all the truth that you have shown me. And we must have that attitude at all times. If we ever think anything other than that, we are in serious danger of being blinded and troubled in our own lives. We want to confess and admit that we are the babes of Almighty God. And we do not want to make comparisons with anyone else of our innate ability on any level compared to them. It is all by the grace of God because it's to the praise of His glory. He's the one with glory. We have none. If eternal life and going to heaven is based on something that you do because of something that I do, and because of something that the woman at the organ does <clears throat> by playing just as I am, then it would be to the praise of our glory. Right. 
Because in that scheme of salvation, God has done everything He could for all men. He loves them all equally. Jesus died for all the sins of all men. The Holy Spirit seeks to convict and woo all men. Therefore, whoever gets to heaven, compared to those who go to hell, is because of something they did. And what they did is dependent upon what others did for them. That's why I mention the preacher, the organ player, the soul winner, the evangelist, and the rest. And no one is going to be in heaven because of any or all of them. There's no one in heaven because of Saul of Tarsus. They're all in heaven because of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is the truth of the gospel. We preach the gospel for God's elect to know what God did for them through Jesus Christ. Not for what they can do in order to get to heaven. The names are already written in the Lamb's book of life and they are all sure to get there. What a glorious doctrine of salvation. And so with a running start, we come to verse 13 of this first chapter of Ephesians and we have the third sentence of three sentences. Would to God, everyone here right down to children, would be able to understand these three sentences and be able to teach them and be able to defend them to some limited degree. Because this chapter, in these three sentences, explains God's eternal phase of salvation before the foundation of the world, the legal phase of what Christ did at the cross, and then what we have coming for us in the final phase in the clearest language. And it gives all the glory to God's grace, purpose, and will. And we want our children to understand that and humble themselves before that. Thank you, Lord. I'm so thankful for hearing these things when I was about 18 years of age. And the Lord convicting me of the glory of them. And so 40 years later, I still love them. I still am overwhelmed by them. It's still difficult to know how to put them into words other than the words given. You know, Adam was whining spiritually a few minutes ago that all he should do is read Psalm 139. How can you improve on it? And I feel the same way. To read those three sentences is about as good as it gets. And when you start trying to explain it, though we're told to, it's difficult to add to the luster of these glorious words. But verse 13, In whom ye also trusted. That also is the important word to identify exactly what the apostle is distinguishing here. He has some trusting in Christ in verse 12. He has others trusting in Christ in verse 13. The word also is comparing the two. The ones in verse 12 trusted in Christ first. Because the gospel was sent first to the Greek, and it says so, Romans 1.16 being an example, and then to the Gentiles or the Greeks. Jesus said during His ministry on earth, I am not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So He was sent to the Jews. Look at Acts chapter 1, and let's show that there was a very definite sequence of places where the apostles were to preach the gospel after the Holy Ghost came upon them on the day of Pentecost. Penta being 50, meaning 50 days after Passover. 
So the Lord Jesus Christ was in the ground three days and three nights. Then He showed Himself alive by many infallible proofs for 40 days. And then there was a week and the Spirit of God fell. Here's what Jesus said before He ascended up into heaven. Verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Jerusalem was a city. Judea was a tribal area, but it was like a state of South Carolina, with Greenville being comparable to Jerusalem. So it's a city, then a state, then a neighboring state called Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. There was a definite sequence of how they were to preach the gospel. So when it says in Ephesians 1 and verse 12, who first trusted in Christ, Paul has pulled himself out of all the first person plural pronouns he's used thus far to identify himself and Jews. And now our 13th verse, in whom ye also trusted. Okay, Ephesians 1.13. In whom ye also trusted. And notice where we trust. In whom we trust in Christ. God chose us in Christ. Our redemption is in His blood. Everything is in Christ. Christ is the means. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the means, the basis of how we are saved. He is who will gather us together in everything is in Christ, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Even when we believe, the emphasis is not in believing on God. The emphasis is believing the witness that God has given of His Son. And I hope last night when you read 1 John chapter 5, that God has given a significant witness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't care about the quotations of Pontius Pilate and other first century historians that identified Jesus of Nazareth as the Christos and having many miracles assigned to him and the fact that the Romans had killed him, but he had been raised from the dead and there were groups of people believing in him all over the Roman Empire. That is not what we believe. What we believe is the water, the blood, and the Spirit. And those three testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was testified at the waters of baptism when God identified Him from heaven as being His Son. He was identified when He died on the cross as the centurion seeing the skies darkened for three hours and a great earthquake taking place said, Surely this man was the Son of God. And then by the preaching of the apostles under the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a further testimony given by eyewitnesses who were with Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights. That's why we believe in Jesus of Nazareth. These men turned the world upside down. These apostles did. Thank you, Lord, for them. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me go back to that Philip and the eunuch. What must I do to, um, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Now the other one's just as good, but uh, we'll go there in a second. What doth hinder me to be baptized? If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. All wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Do you know the Son of God today? Do you know that He came into this world by a virgin birth, that He was the Word of God made flesh, that He lived in this world for 33 and a half years and performed stupendous miracles of a countless number, that He ascended up into heaven, that He sits at God's right hand and He's coming again. God has testified of that and He has put it in writing by eyewitnesses who knew Him, lived with Him, slept with Him, ate and drank with Him, and knew Him intimately. We have a precious New Testament. You know, when you, when you take your Bible and you put your finger at Matthew chapter 1 and you look at, wow, the New Testament's only 20% of the Bible. <laughs> How do you want to compare the two this way? In value. You know, the New Testament goes down and throws the Old Testament off. Because it's called the New Testament because the other one is called Old because it's ready to be thrown away. We are blessed to be on this side of the cross. We are blessed to be removed enough from the day of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have the writings of the apostles collected together in the New Testament scriptures of 27 books. Otherwise, you know, I very well, if we were at Corinth in the, uh, in the 50s, 50 AD, I very well would need to sit down right now and Brother Jim would have to stand up, being another prophet in the congregation, and he'd spin, him, he'd spin his way for five or ten minutes and he'd sit down and Charlie would stand up and go for five or ten minutes because we didn't have the written Word of God yet. Right. But for that little transitional period of time, God get, did give them prophets to where those prophets could stand up and declare the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven before they were written down. But we had them written down. Amen. And uh, we're thankful for that. But it's in Christ. As you look at that 13th verse, we want to... We want to love every word of God. Every word of God is what we're to live by. In whom? We trust in Christ. Yes, Lord. We trust in Him. We do not trust in a Pope. We do not trust in Mary. We do not trust in a pastor. We don't trust in a parent. We don't trust in anyone except the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way, the only one that can get us to the Father. No man can come unto the Father but by me, the Lord Jesus Christ said. Neither is there salvation in any other, Peter preached in Acts chapter 4. For there is no other name given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved, but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all by Him. It's all to Him, for Him, through Him. May Jesus Christ be praised. There are 13 uses of an in-Christ relationship in this chapter, most of them of the eternal union. It is very dense that way about our eternal union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in Him as our only Savior, and we are baptized in His name when we are baptized. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ when we're baptized. We're swearing our allegiance to Him and our total confidence in Him for this world and life in the world to come. Now it says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, after that ye believed. So this trusting in Christ is very comparable to believing in Christ. And we want to talk for just a few minutes about the words that we have here in the Bible 
ye heard the word of truth. So there's something that we hear. Ye heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. Hearing and believing the gospel is a great blessing that God gave to His children. It's hearing it because it needs to be preached. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If a man calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, believing in Him, confessing with his mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, when a person does that, they show the work of regeneration already inside them. They are converted from all the foolish religious notions of the world, and they give the evidence of eternal life. And in that great day of judgment, they shall be saved because they have shown the evidence of it. This has all been preached before in minute detail in Romans chapter 10, in the uh, seven proofs of unconditional salvation, and in the role of faith in salvation. But right now we want to focus on the blessing for this moment. To hear the word of truth. How shall they call in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? So God chose to send men who would preach the Word of God so that others could hear, and based on their hearing, they could believe, and they could call upon the name of Jesus Christ. It is a huge blessing that God not only saved His elect, but that He sent men to tell them about it. He could have waited. And so we wouldn't know anything until after we had died and all of a sudden, wow, I didn't know any of this was going to happen. You know, instead we're going to be, I can't wait for it to happen. That's the attitude we should have. You know, when a man's got a big estate and he makes a last will and testament to give it to his children and they are the beneficiaries of his estate, he puts it in the hands of trustees, Attorneys and lawyers who, upon the death of the testator, come and tell the beneficiaries, we'd like a meeting, you know, phone call or email. We'd like you to come into our office. We have something that we'd like to discuss with you. You go in, they hand some papers across the table, and you read about the inheritance that you did not know that you had. Or the details of the inheritance that you did not know that you had. After that ye heard the word of truth of the gospel. What is the gospel? Goad, spell, old English, good news. The word gospel means good news, glad tidings of good things. Is how the Bible defines it. If you were to compare Isaiah 52, 7 and Romans chapter 10 and other places, you would be able to compare good news. The gospel of your salvation. The good news of your salvation. If you didn't have Ephesians 1, what would you know about your salvation? But when God's regenerated a man, and a preacher comes along, and reads Ephesians chapter 1 to him, and explains it a little bit, there is something inside that man that the Lord opens that man to those words so that they attend unto that preaching, like it says of Lydia in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. The Lord opened her heart so that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. There's Paul's preaching. If the Lord doesn't regenerate us, it's all foolishness. What a bunch of nonsense. I love the way the Lord has made the gospel. 
I love everyone. I love the thought of what's going to happen to everyone that laughs at the gospel. See, I love the whole Bible. God's going to laugh at them. He is laughing at them. I am laughing and will laugh. And he who laughs last laughs best. And God will always have the last laugh because he's God. And I want to be laughing with him. It's all by grace, however. And we have heard the joyful sound as Psalm 89 describes. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the Apostle Paul commended the Thessalonians because when they heard his preaching, they did not receive it as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, remember the great mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. These six things the world doesn't understand or know about or appreciate because they're too blind and stupid. These six things, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now when I look at those six, I get excited about number six. Jesus received up into glory. Then I get excited about God was manifest in the flesh through the virgin birth of Mary. And I remember that when I preached on this verse in detail, a year or two ago, I asked some of you what your favorite part of it was, and I was pretty surprised. And you know what? Your surprise and your appreciation for two of those six elements agrees with what we have right here. That it was preached unto the Gentiles. Right. And then someone else was standing nearby that said, oh, that wouldn't have helped us. It was believed on in the world. You know, these things that God had done, if it hadn't been communicated, and if we hadn't believed it, what good would it do us right. while we're here? True. That's why it, we want to stop here for just a moment and be thankful that it says, ye heard the word of truth. What does that take? God has to send ministers. He has to give His word. They have to preach His word. You have to be in close enough proximity to them to hear you have to have a heart to believe and a mouth that will confess Him. Then you can lay a hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he arranges all those practical benefits of gospel preaching for the benefit of your soul. Preachers, according to the Bible, in, in Isaiah 52 and verse 7 and Romans 10, 15, have beautiful feet. Feet are usually something that we look at and say, wow, she's got ugly feet. You know, or something. You know what I mean? That's why we wear pretty shoes. But ministers are said to have beautiful feet because they're bringing glad tidings of good things. They're they're telling us that the Lord reigneth and that He has already finished the great work of redemption. So this this is an incredible blessing and there are many places that I could turn you to to show you what a blessing it is and the apostles broadcast that word throughout the known world in their lifetimes. Amazing. There's so much emphasis put in the Great Commission that what's overlooked is the apostles fulfilled it during their lives. The Apostle Paul said the gospel that he preached in 1 Corinthians 15 was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. 
by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. What salvation is it that Paul was concerned about? The salvation of hope of the resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15. Because in verse 19 he said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. See, those were believers believing in Christ. Their hope was in Christ. But if they forgot, or because of false teachers, they were misled from remembering the resurrection of the body, their hope would only be in this world. And the hope for Christians in this world is insignificant compared to the hope in the next world. And so the apostle was saying, what I preached, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to the gospel. And if you forget that element, you'll be of all men most miserable because you will have lost the best part of the gospel, what's coming next, which is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Hearing and believing the gospel is not the means of salvation. It's the result of it. Look, I wish that we didn't have to undo Arminianism whenever I preached. But, in chapter 1, it says in verse 19 that Paul was asking for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to make known to the Ephesians what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. In order for any one of us to believe, we have to be raised from the dead, which is what Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses says. And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The word quickened means to make alive. The word quick, describing what is under your fingernail, means a living part that hurts if you stick a pin into it. Quickened. Jesus is coming to judge the quick and the dead. By that comparison of words in your King James Bible, you know what dead is, now you know what quick is. Alive. And you hath he quickened. God made us alive by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in order for us to believe. We don't believe in order to be made alive. We are made alive so that we can believe. And believing is a result and an evidence that we have been made alive. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of that. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 so that we can see the place of the gospel in our salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul is encouraging Timothy to not be ashamed, to not be fearful, because Timothy wasn't temperamentally just like Paul. And so we have here, beginning in verse 6, Paul encouraging Timothy, but I want verse 9, where Paul writes to Timothy, who hath saved us, hath saved us, and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That is exactly what we've learned in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. The very same thing. God has a gracious purpose that was given to us before the world began. Verse 10. But is now made manifest. Until the gospel comes along, you don't know anything about it. But is now made manifest. To make something manifest is to make something visible that was invisible before. Something that was hid is now made known. The manifest of a ship is a list of all the contents in the hold of that ship which you cannot know without looking at the manifest. And the verb manifest means to make something clear that was hidden before, but is now made manifest. Though God made the choice, 
and gave us His purpose and grace in Christ Jesus before the world began, meaning before Genesis 1.1, but it is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Bursting onto the scene of this earth is the Son of God who dies on the cross, a substitutionary death for His people, and makes manifest what had been hidden before, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do by appearing? Who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Jesus abolished and put an end to the penal consequences of death. We have been delivered and given everlasting life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it says He's brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. The Gospel does not bring life and immortality. It brings it to light. The Gospel doesn't cause or bring about or is an instrument in anyone getting saved. It manifests the purpose and grace of God given to us before the world began couldn't be much plainer. He brought it to light through the Gospel. The Gospel is the good news of what He's done. Everyone in total depravity is dead. God saves him first, then brings the news to living ears. Otherwise, it's just foolishness. And you know, the the little illustration I gave you, which is why I don't give very many, no amens that are too loud or laughter that is too loud, I don't like illustrations. I just want to preach the Word. What does the Word say? He brought life and immortality to light. What does the Word say? That God's purpose and grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. How sure is that? It's sure than anything you know. It is sure than anything you can imagine. But it's now made manifest. Now it's revealed and disclosed to us. Thank you, Lord. That is the purpose of the Gospel. That is why the Apostle Paul would say... And you're very close to it if you're still in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes. I wish they would use this text at missionary conferences. I endure all things for the elect's sakes. Paul isn't trying to make anyone elect. Paul knows he can't take a reprobate and make him elect. Paul is not trying to take a goat and turn him into a sheep. Paul is enduring all things for the elect's sake that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There's two things. Eternal glory, God has taken care of. There's another salvation in Christ Jesus. I've just shared that with you from one example, like 1 Corinthians 15, that without knowing about the resurrection of the dead, you are a, you're going to live a miserable life. Because you know that death is continually coming closer when all of your hopes, dreams, and ambitions of this life are going to be snuffed out. But the Gospel brings the news that they're not going to be snuffed out. They're only going to be greatly improved and increased by being in the presence of God forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And so eternal glory is guaranteed by God, but the salvation, the Gospel salvation that Paul could bring with him is the knowledge of that fact. It's bringing life and immortality to light. The light and the life and immortality itself, the everlasting life and immortality, is glory that God has guaranteed from predestination forward. But it needs to be made manifest or brought to light. And so Paul preached the gospel for the elect's sakes. That's what it says. 
You know, we've been criticized because we only want to preach the gospel to the elect. Boy, I wish we could tell all the time that we were only preaching to the elect, but we have to use a shotgun approach and hope that it lands on the elect. The Apostle Paul would go into synagogues. He didn't go into brothels, and he didn't go into malls, and he certainly didn't go into schools. He went into synagogues where there were already people, where there were already people reading the Scriptures and believing in the monotheistic God of the Hebrews. And that's where he would preach the gospel. And some of them would be Gentile proselytes that would go home and tell their family, any family members that, like Cornelius had, that had shown an interest in truth, and the next Sabbath day when they came together, there'd be a larger audience. And so the gospel spread. But we, we should be thankful that we have heard the joyful sound. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 last night, you know what it says there. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish the means of eternal life. Did it say that? No, it did not say that at all. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Unto us which are saved. It was the power of God? No, it is the power of God. Because we are already saved, when we hear the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified, which to the natural man, whether Jew or Greek, is foolishness, it reveals the power of God to us. Unbelievable. God did all that for me? Beautiful. Thank you, Lord. And so it says in Acts chapter 13, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Back to Ephesians chapter 1. Thank you, Lord. So what we've read so far, in whom ye also trusted, you Gentile Ephesians across the Mediterranean Sea from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, in the far western regions of modern Turkey, you also trusted in Christ. And Paul said, I'm going to pray that God will give you enough spiritual enlightenment that you will know he had to use his mighty power to get you to believe. Because he had to quicken you from death. Because you wanted to follow the prince of the power of this world. The spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience. Because you were by nature the children of wrath. Do you know, do you know who the children of wrath are? the ones that shall spend eternity under the wrath of God, the vessels of dishonor, the vessels of wrath. And Paul tells them in the first three verses of chapter 2, you were all those things, but God in his mighty power saved you, and you believed because of it, not in order to get it. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The Spirit regenerates us. We hear and believe. We're sealed with that Spirit. Two of many operations of the Holy Ghost in our lives. The Spirit regenerates us. Maybe I should reverse it. The Spirit regenerates us. We hear and believe the Gospel. Then the Spirit is given to us as a seal and earnest of our inheritance. We have been sealed by the Holy Ghost. Sealing something can be closing something up, not the Bible use of the word, and especially here, but in some other few places. Or to seal something is to identify it with a special mark. A king could seal anything with his signet. 
You know, he could be a ring that could be given to him for a special occasion in wax, which couldn't be duplicated in the, in the kingdom. He could put that signet into wax and seal the lion's den, seal documentation, just like we do today. And the weightier the documentation, the weightier the information being conveyed, the more formal and pronounced and careful is the sealing of it. You can get to where there is wax. You can get to where there are very important seals kept by the United States government or embassies. I'm not talking about your notary public at Walmart. And I didn't make fun of any notary publics. Please, I love all of you. We'll sing a song to you at break time. But even a notary has a special seal that they were given and boom, they press that thing. And then when you get a piece of paper that they have sealed it, you can close your eyes and this is official, baby. This is official because you can feel the seal of the notary public on it. And they sign their date and, and how long they have the authority to seal documents. This is exciting. The blessed God of heaven, doing so much for us before the foundation of the world, wants to put a mark upon us so that others can know and we can know that we are the children of God. And to testify to us that He is ours. It's what causes us to cry, Abba, Father. Because He gives us this seal of our sonship. But there's many things to be said about it. Let me try to briefly say a few before our break. A king could seal anything with his signet, marking it as his own, much as a notary does in, in sealing things, documents, or a governmental unit does in sealing contracts and deals. God marked us with proof of His gift of eternal life and our adoption as His children. He marked us. It's called in this verse, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. God had promised upon His children in the dispensation of the fullness of times, meaning that third dispensation, He would pour out His Spirit. That is to pour out Himself and give Himself to His children. It's in Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out upon the house of David the Spirit of grace. It's in Joel chapter 2. After those days, I will pour out of My Spirit. Peter tells us specifically that Joel chapter 2 is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. God poured out a seal and changed men visually, visibly, outwardly for others to see and put inside them a testimony as well that testified to them that God was their Father and they were His. It is our privilege to use His seal to show our relationship to Him. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, It has been said by them of old time, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Do good. And so forth. Well, now listen to the words that come next. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Well, how do we show that? How do we show that we're the children of God? We love our enemies. Now, is that a natural thing to do? People don't naturally love their enemies. People naturally hate their enemies. But the Spirit of God within us teaches us to love our enemies. 
to pray for them that despitefully use us. I'm quoting the passage again. I hope you know where it's at. It's the last five verses of Matthew chapter 5. And do good to them that despitefully use you. How about John 13, 35? Jesus said by this, Shall all men know that ye are my disciples. By what? By the love ye have one to another. The seal. You're in, you're in the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 4 and verse 30. Chapter 4 and verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. See, here it is again in the Bible. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, because that's the seal of your sonship and eternal life unto the day of redemption. See, redemption. The day of redemption. Redemption is mentioned back here in verse 14, which we're going to get to after our break. But the Holy Spirit is our seal of it. If you can turn quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll show you another passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22. Who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. God is in our hearts as the seal that we are His children. And as the earnest that He has some other things to do for us. The more important the transaction, the more expensive and significant the seal. Now that's why you think of a notary seal. You think of some wax and a signet. What is the seal of adoption and sonship? The presence of God in a human body. Unbelievable. Incredible. What kind of inheritance is on the way? Are you thinking with me? We have received the presence of God in us and with us for permanent dwelling as a seal of what He has in store for us. This is taking these verses, reading them distinctly, and giving you the sense of them. They're wonderful. And the same apostle wrote of them in other places as well. Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. After believing, God seals us with the Holy Spirit of His presence for the sure evidence. Romans 5, 5, God has given us the Holy Spirit which sheds abroad in our hearts that God loves us. Causes us to call, Abba, Father. You know, a verse that's become one of my favorites that I've told you for about the last five years, Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Ghost. Is it possible for any one of us or all of us to be filled with all joy, all peace, and to abound in hope? On what basis? Our faith, followed up by the gift of the Holy Ghost, whose power in us is able to give us those three things. Abounding hope and to be filled with all joy and peace. That's why I love that verse. We can bounce around on this planet and dance on our high places, even in the face of economic disaster or any other troubles. Nothing should be able to get a child of God down by the power of the Holy Ghost. They can be full, be filled with all joy and peace and abound in hope. The Spirit produces love in us. Do you know what the assurance of eternal life is according to 1 John 4.13? The Holy Spirit in you. How do I know that the Holy Spirit's in me? Go read 1 John chapter 4. Because you love the brethren. 
Loving the brethren is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in you. Somebody should give me a lesson in time management. Or you got to just shrink the Word of God. 1 John 4.13 Hereby know we that we dwell in Him. I want to know this. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us. Do you want to know this fact? Because He hath given us of His Spirit. Well, I'm still in doubt. I don't know if He's in me. I don't know if I'm in Him. And I don't know if I have His Spirit. Well, then back up to the previous verse. No man hath seen God at any time. That's why you have a problem. You haven't seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him. You see? That Holy Spirit in us changes us. I know what these verses are saying. Does everyone else in here agree with me that without the grace of God, you do not have very much love for your enemies? I mean, without the grace of God, I don't have very much love for my friends. Don't anybody take that too seriously from me. But it is serious. The Lord's changed. The Lord changes us. And that's the proof that we are His sons. That's the seal of our eternal life that is coming. Thank you, Lord, for these things. If you do not have the testimony inside, you are a reprobate or carnal child of God. If you do not have the testimony outside, we don't have any confidence in you as a child of God. The Holy Ghost is an incredibly significant gift by God to us that He promised to give us. That's why it's called the Holy Spirit of promise. Because God promised to give it to us. John chapter 7, the Holy Spirit promised it to us in parentheses where it said, the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Oh, here's this promise. Do you know where we live? We live in the best time in the history of the world because the Bible is describing progressive revelation reaching to us. We are after Jesus was glorified and the Holy Spirit was given, poured out on the day of Pentecost. Peter said it was fulfilled. What does the Holy Spirit do for you? Listen carefully. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. First, I'm going to give you ten things. The Holy Spirit has many roles in our lives. I'm going to give you ten of them. God chose us to eternal life and the Holy Spirit put us in Christ and Christ for us. And His obedience and sprinkling was applied to us by eternal phase of sanctification. I preached it to you in 1 Peter 1-2. Now, since you're in the book of Ephesians, that's what he did before the world began. He regenerates us. Does it say that in the first three verses of Ephesians? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that God has quickened us? You say, well, how do I... Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and you hath he quickened. So the Spirit regenerates us. This is the vital phase of salvation. How do we know it's the Spirit? Because John chapter 3, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit... He cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay? I see it, Pastor. Since I know you don't have very much time to go and preach a whole sermon on being regenerated by the power of the Holy Ghost. How about His sealing presence? That's what we get next. After we believe. Where we... From left to right. God electing you and sanctifying you eternally 
to the obedience of Jesus Christ before the world began, then God, the Holy Spirit, regenerating you, then you believe the gospel, then He seals you with the Holy Spirit of promise. After you believe, you are given a fuller measure of the Holy Ghost. It's it's right here, verses 13 and 14 that we've read today. It's chapter 4 and verse 30, sealed with the Holy Ghost. I've got to go to number 4. It's in chapter 1 and verse 17. That the God of our Father, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. There is further revelation of wisdom and knowledge about God and Jesus Christ for you. Chapter 1, verse 17. These are all successive to each other. Access to God by assisted praying. Chapter 2 and verse 18. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Jews and Gentiles can go straight to God by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 8, prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered and perfect content according to the will of God. Church ministry, chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in His churches. The seven spirits of God, from Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Here it's described, spiritual might in your inner man to know the full dimensions of Christ's love. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 19 of this same book. This book that wants to tell us so much about the seal and the earnest of the Spirit gives us the most detail of any epistle in the New Testament about the work of that Spirit. Revelation to your teachers to perfect you. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. They wrote down their things in the Word of God, and there were gifts given to men which included pastors and teachers. Chapter 4 of this same book, for the perfecting of the saints, because they preached the Word of those inspired apostles. Fruit-bearing, chapter 5, verse 9, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And then fighting. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit wrote this book, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. There's ten roles and ministries of the Holy Spirit. The seal given to us. We understate Him. We underestimate Him. We do not appreciate Him like we should. Thus, in the preaching on higher ground, I asked this church, I exhorted this church, And I committed myself that we would put more emphasis on the Holy Spirit because it is by His power we are able to do the things God wants us to do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Wow, the presence of God in all these different ways. If you'll just highlight the operations of the Spirit of God in the book of Ephesians and its six chapters, you'll have quite a lesson on what the Holy Spirit does. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.